I, I know you're a classical music fan. I am indeed. Oh, I would say I'm a big Mahler fan. What brought you to classical music? How did you come into classical music? Well, my father always played classical music when I was growing up, and his favorite thing would be to get a fire going and uh, get his bathrobe on with his uh, slippers and pajamas and sit down by the fire and put on opera and fall asleep. Really? Yes, and my grandfather was a big classical uh, fan. I started playing trumpet in elementary school and then got switched in junior high to horn because they had too many trumpet players and they needed a horn player, and which was a really stupid thing for the band conductor to have done because horn is a, a much harder instrument. I was not good on the trumpet, but he put me on a harder instrument. <laughs> the trumpet and I never really communicated very well. And the horn I started playing, and it just it felt natural to me. It was a good fit. And then I was lucky enough to grow up in D.C., where they had the D.C. Youth Orchestra, so I was able to join that in ninth grade, their junior orchestra. And then by the time I started high school, I was playing in the D.C. Youth Orchestra, the, the senior ensemble. And we were, again, fortunate to have a conductor who threw big pieces of music at us, the, the standard orchestral repertory that you'd see in any uh, elite orchestra. So Mahler, um, Beethoven, uh, Tchaikovsky, Sibelius. And so we were playing that when I was in high school and then ended up uh, continuing to play in, in college and then a little bit in grad school. Oh, wow. Now, the French horn, I don't think that's used in any other genre of music other than classical, is it? Well, actually, if you listen to some of the Frank Sinatra uh, music, they'll ha he'll have horn in that, I think. There have been some horn players that have dabbled in jazz. Beatles also, but they're bringing orchestra into right, what they're doing. Right, But it's it's mostly a uh, an orchestral instrument. So from being on the French horn, you started to develop a love of classical music? Was this and I, from I, your dad as I well? I already had that, but yeah, the horn solidified it. And then I started building my record collection, and then it never really stopped listening. Oh, wow. I came into classical music through Fantasia. Remember back in the days when films had to be re-released? Oh, yes. Before they oh, were. Yeah. So uh, they had different, you know, different time periods of re-release. And in February of 85, Fantasia was re-released. And I was a huge Disney fan at the time. That was 85. So I was a sophomore in high school at the time. And I would walk around wearing my uh, Walkman knockoff I got from the swap meet, listening to... Uh, Fantasia on cassette that I had borrowed from the library. Wow. And I came into it through that. And then a couple years later, I saw the movie Amadeus for the first time. And that was in the back room of one of the teacher's classrooms at my high school. So if you're a senior who wants to ditch, it's always beneficial to find a teacher who's retiring and just doesn't give a shit. <laughs> so she didn't care if I was hanging out in the back room while she taught other classes. And that's where I first saw the movie Amadeus. And uh, that just increased my liking of classical music. Yeah, I saw the Amadeus in a small, God, I forgot the name of it in Chicago, a small, I think it was called the Music Box. And that's where I first saw the movie. But it was uh, quite a production. 
Yeah, it is. And uh, that's what we're gathered here today to talk about is the movie Amadeus, which came out in 1984, starring F. Murray Abraham, Tom Holtz, and Elizabeth Bearbridge. The film was directed by Milos Forman and was written by Paul Schaffer based on his play. And we had a conversation last week. You said you don't think Amadeus is a biopic. Not the normal biopic, I guess I would say. When you take a look at the movie about Ray Charles or, or Johnny Cash or all those, they start from... Uh, pretty young and try to do a chronological run through their life. Uh, and I don't think that this is the the case at all with Amadeus. I think you pick it up midstream. You have a little flash of, about his brilliance as a child protege, but it really picks up the story when he's in, when he enters Vienna. Yeah. Um, so I think it just captures a bit of his time there, obviously truncated, although Mozart didn't live very long. So truncated meaning in a couple of years. Yeah, and I think what you said is it doesn't say at the beginning based on a true story. No, and I think that's to its credit. It can take liberties, and it does, but it has a compelling storyline. And after you mentioned that, I went and did some research, and I found a quote from Paul Schaffer, who was the playwright of the play that started in London, and then he worked with Milos Forman to develop the screenplay for the movie. And he said, Amadeus is a fantasia based on fact. It is not a screen biography of Mozart and was never intended to be the movie is less so. Oh, I would agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I think he, as a screenwriter and as a playwright, took liberties, but he's working with some factual material. I mean, a lot of factual material about Mozart. I think the movie portrays Scalieri in a little bit too negative of light, but it, it, it takes a uh, an urban myth and runs with it. I, I would agree with that. But at the same time, I think it fits what we're doing here because... This is what taught a lot of people about Mozart. I think a majority of people have taken their knowledge of Mozart from this film. And I think there's things in there which are are true, which are interesting to dig into. And there's other things that, uh, as you mentioned, are fiction that have a basis in reality. I think it's going to be interesting to dig into all of it today. Okay. So Amadeus is the story of the composer Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, as told by his sworn enemy Antonio Salieri, who has been committed to a mental hospital in his old age after trying to take his own life. He confesses to a priest that he killed Mozart because he believed that God had put Mozart on the earth to mock him and his musical talents. Mozart gets an 8.3 out of 10 from the Internet Movie Database, a 93% rating from Rotten Tomatoes, and an 88% rating from Metacritic. All pretty respectable numbers there. Absolutely. Now, let's find out what we thought about the film. So for you, David, what, what did you like about the film Amadeus? What struck you? Well, the soundtrack was brilliant. Oh, and the staging of it was opulent. I mean, you really got a sense of the high society, Vienna, and just the wealth that had accrued there. And I, I thought the the storyline itself was a, an interesting arc. Again, you, you take a, a composer who is would never be compared with Mozart, and then you you run a Mozart through his eyes of, of being a good composer, but never is going to be as good as Mozart. Mm -hmm. And to think of him working so hard at his craft, and then Mozart just seems to come just so easy. And so I think it sets up a a really strong dramatic tension. Yeah, I I was a big fan of the film as soon as I saw it. And I have to say, one of the things that struck me seeing it as a teenager 
would be the introduction of Mozart, where Salieri sees him. He's looking for Mozart, where the concert's going to take place, trying to figure out which one of the people there is Mozart. And he sees him rolling around on the floor with Constance and being puerile and vulgar and cannot believe that this is the same person. And as a teenager, what struck me about that is kind of popping the assumption that in order to do great things, you have to present yourself greatly, that there that there can't be uh, a personality which isn't great that produces great things. You can be filthy, you can have a toilet sense of humor, and yet you can write amazing compositions at the same time. And to me, that really humanized Mozart and took him off of the pedestal. Right, and I think for people who were older, they found that portrayal discomforting. Um, Particularly, I I think a lot of folks took issue with Tom Hulse's uh, presentation, particularly the laugh. I I know people really were troubled by it, but I I think there's accuracy in what you're saying. But you put composers on these uh, pedestals, and it's hard to take them down. Yeah. And Tom Holtz's laugh, which, by the way, you know, he can't recreate that on his own. He had to take some shots of whiskey every time he had to produce it because he just can't get it out of his own body by himself. Uh, But the laugh is one thing that this movie has been very criticized for as being annoying over the top too much. But when I look at the movie and how the narrative is being told, which is through Salieri's jaundiced eyes... Wouldn't that be the most mocking laugh you can imagine coming at you if God is using this person to mock you and and what you deem to be your own talents? So therefore, that laugh through Salieri's eyes, I think, is perfectly justifiable. Oh, I do, I do too. I'm just saying yeah. when, when people, you asked how people reacted to it, and the folks who I know who are very serious about their classical music just really had trouble with it. But I think, again, you're confusing what Mozart was versus your interpretation, which yeah. I think is probably correct, how, Mo- how Mozart is being seen by Scalieri. Yep, because that's the thing. It's not a straight-on presentation of Mozart. It's a presentation of Mozart through the eyes of Salieri. Oh, I want to say also, this movie is timeless. It does not look like it was made in 1984. Agreed. I mean, there's some movies you talked about. We were having some breakfast, and you talked about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. The, those huge sideburns are 1970s all the way. There's 1970s style that seep into what's supposed to be a period piece, and you don't see any of that in Amadeus at all. No, and I think you, you have to look at who designed the costumes. Edith Head, who is one of the great costume designers uh, around. And for, so, most, for Amadeus? I think so. I think so. I'll have to check that one out. Please do. I, I may be wrong, but the, the costumes were just spectacular. I remember people being wowed by uh, the, what was it, the John Malkovich, um, uh, gosh, a great actress. Dangerous Liaison? Dangerous Liaison, mm-hmm. also being struck by how great the, the costumes were. But uh, And I was just taken with how, uh, how uh, colorist the wigs were. You know, you, yeah. you, you see the, the standard view of them as their white wigs, but I mean, they're purple and, and pink and green. And 
uh, I, was, I thought over the top, but the costumes themselves were just uh, really eye-catching to me. And the production value is even more amazing because I was watching a featurette about the making of Amadeus, and they were uh, where they shot was in Prague, Czechoslovakia, and this is still during Iron Curtain times when they filmed it, but they didn't have anything that was available for producing films on that level. Everything had to be sourced from somewhere else. So there there was not production uh, level work being done in Prague, and they had to bring all that stuff in. That I did not know. And also, speaking of Prague and Iron Curtain at that time, Milos Forman comes from there. He came from he to the United States. So when he went back to negotiate to be able to film Amadeus there, he was there for about six months before production started. The Czech government wound up assigning a driver to him. And that driver was his childhood friend. So the message was very much that if Milos Forman does anything that they don't like, his friend is going to pay. Pay. Also, there were secret police all through the production as well, who were some of the extras. And this this is pretty interesting because they were filming on the 4th of July, one of the big theater scenes. And I, I want to talk about the theater, too, because the theater's gorgeous. In yes. Film. Uh, one of the big theater scenes, and 4th of July obviously isn't a holiday in Czechoslovakia, but Milos Forman cued the playback of the music. And what someone in the crew had done, they had organized to play the national anthem. They had rigged the U.S. flag to fall from the flies in front of the stage. And there's 500 extras who are filling that theater, all Czechoslovakian extras. And members of the cast and crew say what wound up happening is, well, number one, Jeffrey Jones, who played Emperor Joseph in this, Mm -hmm. he said, I was worried we were all going to be arrested because this is an act of rebellion. Or could be viewed as an act of rebellion. But the 500 extras stood up and started singing or humming the national anthem of the United States of America, along with the Americans who were in the cast and crew, all except for about 40 people who were sprinkled throughout, who were looking back and forth at each other going, well, what are we supposed to do here? And those were the members of the secret police who were embedded. Of course, of course, yeah. And that theater, uh, number one, is gorgeous. Number two, in the featurette, they were saying, because of the communist caretaking of some of these properties, that this place was a tinderbox. There were no fire prevention at all in there. And yet the Czech government let them rig chandeliers full of candles. If you remember the Don Giovanni scene, with there's a lot of fire going on everywhere. And that's all being done in this theater. And they filmed with fire for about four days in there. And they were just worried to death that they were going to burn the place down. But it looks just absolutely gorgeous on film. It does. And actually, I had that thought running through my head of playing with fire without modern fire suppression systems. (laughs) (laughs) And when they're filming Don Giovanni, that is the theater that Don Giovanni premiered in. So there is some squaring of that tom holtz is basically standing where mozart stood while playing mozart conducting don giovanni that's pretty cool is there anything about the movie that you didn't like well i don't know about didn't like 
as we've talked about, I think Scalieri is is passed off as a two bit hack of a composer. You know, I don't know if that's true, but I'm even before you may cue up uh, one of his pieces. The even the intro where where Mozart is introduced to Emperor Franz Joseph, mm-hmm. that's meant as sort of uh, his composition is dismissive. I mean, it's so simple. But if you take a look at who he's writing the piece for. He's writing it for the emperor, who is not a particularly good sight reader. And so he writes a piece of music that the emperor can get down with some difficulty, but nevertheless is manageable. And then Mozart comes in and does the embellishment. But if you listen to Scalieri's music, it has all the the, the classical embellishments that one would expect that Mozart played off of. So in some ways, it sets up this, uh, this uh, portrayal of Scalieri as not being particularly gifted and then you take a very simple melody and then this is what Mozart can do with it and uh, so I think it sets up the tension very well but I, I do think it makes him seem not as an accomplished composer And that really is almost a comical scene. Poor Salieri, not only does he have to suffer through Emperor Joseph just butchering his march that he wrote to honor Mozart's visit, but then he has to suffer through Mozart making improvements on it in front of the rest of the court. It's Correct, correct. It's just painful to watch. It's, it really is almost comical the way it's presented. I wanted to mention that some of the technology they they used in making the film is frequently the actors would have little uh, AM earbuds in their ears. So as they're talking about music, for instance, I think one of the most beautiful pieces of writing in the film is when Salieri at the beginning in the mental hospital is talking about Amadeus's composition. And as he's talking about the note hanging there until an oboe takes it Mm -hmm. over, you're hearing the composition at the same time. Well, if Marie Abraham was able to do that because he's hearing the composition in his ear while they were filming. That was pretty clever. Uh, Because that scene comes off as very genuine and you wonder how many takes would it, would it, uh, how many takes did it require to get to that level of precision of the, uh, of the conducting? Yeah. Sir Neville Mariner said that it's for Tom Holtz playing the harpsichord. He never hit a wrong note, even when he was upside down and playing it with his arms crossed in that party scene. Sir Neville Mariner says he didn't hit a wrong key ever throughout the film. So he was the appropriate actor to play Mozart. But when they were filming, he was playing a dead harpsichord. Of course. There was no sound coming out, which means... When he looked away in some shots that were required, he didn't know where his hands were on the keys because he's not hearing it at all. But he still did an excellent job doing it. And in the scene with uh, Salieri and Mozart at the end, when Mozart is on his deathbed and they're working on the Requiem together, Mm -hmm. that AM earpiece I mentioned actually wound up cutting out while they were filming the scene. So you see Mozart is sitting there and Salieri is asking him, so what, what? And there's a, a pause, and Tom Holtz, is, as Mozart, is looking quite sick and like he's trying to think of it. That's when the earpiece cut out. They kept it in the movie. And then there were other parts during the filming of that scene, he would switch parts of the dialogue around on F. Murray Abraham, so F. Murray Abraham would feel lost 
and would become anxious, which played perfectly well for the scene. Well, and the, the acting was great. And the other thing, I I don't know if you've talked about this in other um, of your podcasts, but it was interesting to have this as an American uh, base crew other than Murray Abrahams. Yeah. So all of them, all the actors and actresses, I believe, were American other than uh, Murray Abraham. Is he not American? He might be. He might be. I think just think of him playing a lot of uh, being cast yeah. in a lot of British productions. But you would expect a period piece like that. Almost all the period pieces are British actors. Yeah. I mean, you cannot watch a movie about Rome without hearing <laughs> a British actor. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's true. No, the, the cast was great. And Mark Hamill from Star Wars played Amadeus on Broadway. And he wanted to play in the movie. In fact, the role of Amadeus and the role of Salieri were parts that every actor in Hollywood wanted. And, you know, Mark Hamill talked to Milos Forman. And one of the things that gets mentioned by actors about Milos Forman is how forthright he is. He, he just does not draw anything out. He just cuts to the quick. And he told Mark Hamill right away, no, I don't want you in the role because I don't want people thinking about Luke Spacewalker. <laughs> the entire time. And Mark Hamill says, I appreciate that he just told me straight out rather than let me go through the process and, you know, end up not getting it. So, and, and same with uh, Elizabeth Bearbridge being uh, cast as Constance, mm -hmm. who I love her in this film. She is so good in that role, but it was between her and another actress. And both actresses were flowing out to Prague as filming was about to start and auditioning, and they were really having a tough time. And Milo Schwarman just wound up telling the other actress, who hasn't been named, that uh, really you're too pretty to play the role. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He's just, he's just straight ahead. And Jeffrey Jones, who played the Emperor, he said they had been filming for a few weeks, and he went up to Milo Schwarman and said, is everything okay? Am I doing okay? I'm, uh, and Milos says, yeah, you're doing fine. Okay, because you haven't had any notes for me. He said, that's because you're doing fine. That's a good story. And and what's the actor's name who plays uh, the emperor? Uh, Jeffrey Jones. I thought he was spectacular in that. Oh, I love and, him. And it really gave the emperor uh, a sense of humanity. Yes. Uh, that he, I mean, when you think about it, here you have Mozart challenging him on stage. You know, you've wrote too many notes. Where where do you want me to cut? And you think of uh, whether that was true or not, it'd be pretty uh, audacious for a composer to, to publicly challenge a, a monarch. I thought that, but I thought he played the emperor beautifully. I, I agree. Uh, he's one of my favorite characters in the film. He, he does have a humanity. He has a humility as well. Yes, yes. Because he's contrasted with the emperor who's not happy with Mozart at the beginning of the film. Correct. And, and yeah, Emperor Joseph is really great. For me, I think the film's perfect. It's, it's timeless. It hits all the right notes. I don't think it has too many notes. I think it's just, I can't think of anything negative about it in any way. Well, I, nothing negative, just uh, it's a compelling story. And uh, as we, we talked about before, really on almost every category, how you would rate or review a movie, it, it, is, it, it hits a high note. It absolutely does. So out of five stars, one to five stars, what would you give the movie Amadeus as a piece of entertainment? 4.8. 4.8. I'm going to go five. Go full okay. five with it. Okay, go full five. 
All right. Now it's time to talk about the historical accuracy of what was presented in the film Amadeus. We'll compare the overall story and some specific instances to determine if this is a biopic that mostly sucks. And we're going to hit a few key points here, David. We're going to talk about Antonio Salieri because this is really his story that's being told here. We'll talk about Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. We're going to talk about a theme that runs throughout the film, which is Mozart's money troubles which seems to be the cause of some a lot of what happens. And then we're also going to talk about The Requiem. Are you familiar with the story behind The Requiem? Somewhat, but not as exhaustively familiar as you are. It is a almost comic tale of deception and business dealings on all levels. And honestly, I'd like to see a movie made about the making of The Requiem, because I think it would be a dark comedy. Probably would be. And we're going to talk about Mozart's death, and then we'll also talk about one of the themes that we talk about on this podcast is, did the filmmakers do any harm? Did they do harm to anyone's reputation? And we'll decide that after talking about what was true and not true in the story of Amadeus. So let's go ahead and start with Antonio Salieri. What was in the movie? Is that Antonio Salieri was a man who was consumed by bitter jealousy of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. He was a chaste bachelor who renounced God and claimed to have killed Mozart in his confession to a young priest. And I'm starting with Salieri because this is really his story. This is his telling of the story of Mozart. And what we see of Mozart is influenced by the thoughts the character Antonio Salieri has. Salieri was born August 18, 1750 in Lanago, just south of Verona in the Republic of Venice. Antonio was first taught by his older brother, Francesco Salieri. Antonio claimed to not remember much of his childhood, except for a fondness of music, reading, and sugar. You have to have that sugar in there, Rob. Salieri's parents died when he was 14. And I want to just take an aside here and note a wonderfully dark comic moment in the film, which is when a young Salieri is praying in the church to God And then it cuts the family at the dinner table, and he says, and then a miracle happened. And his father goes, ah! And he's finally released (laughs) to do what he thinks he's put on earth to do, which is to compose. But Salieri's parents died when he was 14, and he was taken in by a monk in Padua. Within a year or two, he became a ward of Giovanni Monsenigo, of the well-connected and wealthy Monsenigo family. Salieri continued his music studies with Giovanni Battista Passetti, and after Passetti's sudden death, he studied with opera singer Ferdinando Passini. Through Passini, Salieri gained the attention of composer Florian Leopold Gassman, who took him to Vienna in 1766 when Salieri was just 16. That's a pretty heady move. Quite a good couple of years there. Quite a lot of learning taking place for Salieri at such a young age. Gassman's first priority upon arriving in Vienna was to consecrate Salieri's teachings and service to God in the Catholic Church. So there's a little bit of truth coming in there about service to God from the character of Salieri. Gassman would attend the musical performances held during the dinner of Emperor Joseph. The emperor really liked Salieri, and their relationship started to develop. So that's how we get to what we see in the film, which is Salieri there in the, uh, in the court. In 1774, Gassman was called away for a new opera commission, which allowed Salieri to attempt his first commission for the emperor. Gassman died later the same year, 
and Salieri succeeded him as the assistant director of Italian opera in Emperor Joseph's court, which is what we see in the film. Mm -hmm. Salieri was 24 by this time. So from age 14 when his parents died, it's only been 10 years, and here he is, the assistant director of Italian opera in the Emperor's court. Which was arguably one of the most important centers for music in Europe. Also in 1774, Salieri married Therese Helferstorfer. In his work, he had no great success commercially or artistically. He was very renowned, though, but he continued to oversee Italian operas and teach music to the children of rich parents. And one of the things that's interesting is, for Salieri, only the very rich paid for pupils to study. And that's what he did in order to pay back how others brought him up, is he would teach pupils for free. In 1777, Joseph II decided to end the Italian opera in his court due to financial mismanagement. The theaters which showed Italian opera would now show operas in German that contained good German values, which is a line that's mentioned in the film. If we consider the scene in the movie where the Italians are ganging up on Mozart, there might be some truth to their wanting to have opera in Italian, because it was a way for them to continue on doing what they're doing. On the other hand, Mozart also did have a penchant for being a bit dramatic. His librettist and collaborator Lorenzo de Ponte later recalled, quote, Mozart had always been prevented by the intrigues of his enemies from giving proof of his divine genius in Vienna. That's quite a line. Quite a bit of drama in that line as well. Mozart had also written letters to his father about the cabal of Italians in the court and how he felt they were preventing him from getting certain jobs. Well, and I think classical music is known for having some fairly sharp elbows. And uh, you can hear some of the drama behind the Met and some of the other renowned uh, opera houses. So that has been perhaps a constant but it, it stands to reason if you're thinking you're slipping in your position and, and you have income and stature and another language is being touted as the new form for opera to be expressed in, then I could see how they would fight back. Now, Salieri never really mastered German and no longer felt comfortable being the opera assistant in the court. Salieri had few financial commissions available to him on the royal court, and he was granted a leave of absence by Joseph II to write for the La Scala Opera House in Milan, and to pursue other opportunities, including taking his work on a tour of Italy. Well, La Scala, I don't know if La Scala had the same cachet 300 years ago as it does now, but that's a, a pretty good assignment. Yeah, he kind of landed on his feet with that, didn't yes. he? Yes. In 1780, he returned to Vienna at a royal request and began to rebuild the Italian opera company with singers vetted from his Italian tour. While Salieri's body of work, uh, some would say, pales in comparison to Mozart's, it's interesting to note the difference in the people each man taught music to. Mozart's peoples were not anyone whom the layperson would recognize. Salieri's pupils included Ludwig von Beethoven, Carl Sersny, Johann Nepomuk Hummel, who was also a student of Mozart's, Franz Liszt, and Franz Schubert. The students of Scalieri are, uh, in many cases, well, Beethoven, the titan of 19th century classical music, but uh, Franz Liszt, arguably one of the great pianists of all time, uh, in terms of just his virtuosic skills, I don't think anybody could hardly touch him. So in terms of his legacy in music and, and uh, teaching piano, 
uh, you could say he had uh, quite uh, a strong impact. Yeah, he had quite an influence. He's like, uh, in rock, you have these bands who are awfully influential, but never quite get popular. And Salieri seems to be in that category. Yeah, and when you take a look at how musicians made their money, then particular composers, you had to have a, a patron, and Beethoven struggled with that. Mm-hmm. Mozart struggled with it, and you could argue that a lot of uh, artists, composers in the classical realm struggle with that today. I mean, if you're fortunate, you get to be a composer in residence at a top-tier orchestra like uh, Chicago or or Los Angeles, uh, New York, etc., uh, but if you if you don't have the the, the revenue stream and or you're not teaching at a at a university, which is the other platform for this, it's hard to make money. Uh, so so do many people who play in orchestras have second jobs nowadays? Well, the the second job would be similar to uh, what you saw in Amadeus, which is most professional orchestral musicians teach, mm-hmm. and so they'll have uh, students they that study under them, and that provides in some cases a quite lucrative. Um, stream of money for them. And I guess if you're fortunate enough to live in Los Angeles, for instance, there's a lot of work in producing scores for motion pictures as well as a side gig. The number of orchestras that are recording classical for the the movies is is down quite Mm -hmm. a bit. I think there's only three or four now. But you'll see the LA Phil populates a lot of those. But you have uh, you have very, very, very talented musicians that have been in Los Angeles forever. There was a, f- a famous French horn player, Vincent de la Rosa, I think is, was his name, and, and he, he played on a number of Frank Sinatra albums. But he's considered one of the best horn players uh, that, that people had ever heard. But he, he made his money playing for Hollywood. He may have played for the L.A. Phil at some point, but he is known mostly as a studio musician. Uh- and not to get sidetracked, but some of those studio musicians are some of the best musicians you've never heard of. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So back to Salieri. Salieri was committed to medical care for the last year and a half of his life due to dementia. He died on May 7th, 1825, at the age of 74. A ripe old age uh, for that point in history. He lived a good long life, and his shadow looms large over classical music. It does. Let's go ahead and talk about Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. In the movie, Mozart was an accomplished child prodigy who grew to be a skilled composer. His skill is contradicted by his puerile sense of humor, his drinking, and his ability to always find a party to attend. He is married to Constance, who loves him and protects him in the world of Vienna society. What really happened? Well, the man we know as Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart was born January 27, 1756, in Salzburg, Austria. His full name is Johannes Chrysotomus Wolfgangus Theophilus Mozart. His name is the feast day of his birth, St. John Chrysotom. His maternal grandfather, Wolfgang, and Theophilus means lover of God in Greek. Amadeus is the Latin equivalent of Theophilus. But he was a cosmopolitan kind of guy, and he would also go by the German equivalent of Gottlieb or the Italian equivalent of Amadeo. But his preference seems to have been for the French version of Amade. And while we're talking about his name, there is no record that he was known as Wolfie. His nicknames were Wolferol, Wolfel, or Wolfgangrel. Likewise, his wife Constance was not called Stanzi, but Stanchin or Stanzerol. 
but Wolfie and Stanzi may just simply be an attempt at translating those nicknames into English. And easier to pronounce. Than Wolferol. Yes. Yeah, just rolls right off the tongue, it doesn't sure it? sure does. Mozart had one sister, and they were the only surviving children of the seven that his mother Anna Maria bore. Mozart learned the harpsichord from the age of three and began to compose music at the age of five. He had a reputation as a child prodigy by the age of six. He performed throughout Europe in front of kings and queens and was kissed by Marie Antoinette. He composed his first opera at the age of 12, Bastien and Bestine. Mozart went to Vienna at the age of 14 to write operas. After a few years there, he went to Paris for nine months, but it was not fruitful. He moved back to Vienna at the age of 25. The 10 years he spent in Vienna were one of the most prolific for any composer. He became fast friends with Franz Joseph Hayden and was influenced by the works of Bach and Handel. Yes, and prolific is an understatement when you take a look at his oeuvre. I like the French uh, word, oeuvre of, of Mozart. It's, it's pretty amazing how the guy ever even slept. I mean, the movie portrays him as working very hard, which I think is probably very accurate because I don't know how you can produce such volume, but also such high, I mean, not everything is great, but but consistently high quality works. Yeah. And he's he's writing also for his friends. So as a horn player, one of the, the great gifts of Mozart to the horn was he wrote four concertos as well as a rondo. And these are the staples of uh, of any horn player who who wants to show his or her stuff or their stuff uh, is to be able to play these Mozart concertos. And he he had one of his good friends as a horn player, so he just wrote these concertos for his friend. Oh, so wow. so it's not just that he's writing opera or symphonies or sonatas or concertos for the main instrument, which would be piano. He's writing um, he's writing pieces for his friends. And what's interesting is he wrote one piece for the flute, and he said he hated the flute. Really? But he wrote a piece for the, the flute, and, and uh, I believe it is harp. But he just he didn't like flutists, and he didn't like writing for the flute, apparently. But he wrote beautiful stuff for the clarinet. His clarinet concerto and his uh, clarinet quartet are just fabulous pieces of music. So he, he really ran the, the gamut from being able to compose for small chamber pieces like uh, quartets or that, all the way up to full-fledged operas. Oh, wow. His uh, his total count here of works, 20 operas, 18 masses, 27 piano concertos, 23 string quartets, 35 sonatas for piano and violin, and 41 symphonies. And that's not counting other works that we'll talk about in a little bit that he wrote for parties and he wrote for friends, which he put in his personal catalog. Yeah. I mean, he was prolific. Mozart's music was not necessarily music of the people. It was found to be too long, too academic, too complex. And one might say he was the progressive rock of his time, if that's the case. He was Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. He was, yes. He was Jethro Tull. Well, I, I, I guess you could make that comparison. I mean, Haydn is writing in the same era. I mean, Haydn was brilliant. And also prolific like Mozart. Probably not as, uh, I mean, there's elements of Mozart where you, it, it, I think that's captured well in the movie where he just hits it and you just go, wow. And Haydn had those moments as well. But I, I just think of Mozart, and I could be wrong on this, and classical players can 
send me nasty emails, but I just think of Mozart as a bit deeper. Uh, and, and, and certainly his latter symphonies tend to have a, uh, a darker, mm-hmm. uh, or a more, um, it's like you, you take the classical period and you, like any period you do what you can with it. And then it, the, the structures of it get to be so confining that you're looking for ways out. And I think that's where signals the era of Beethoven, where he just broke away from the classical structure the, that is that, of that era. But I think you could see elements of that with Mozart. Oh, interesting. In 1782, despite his father's misgivings, Mozart married Constance Weber, whose elder sister Mozart had unsuccessfully courted. Hmm. He kept it all in the family. He did. Weber hailed from a musical family herself, and she and her sisters had made names for themselves as singers. The couple were devoted to each other and had six children, although only two survived infancy. Now, did Mozart really have a dirty and puerile sense of humor like the movie shows? There are numerous references to farts and ass-looking in the film that Mozart has put forth as humorous. Could a man who made some of the most beautiful music the world has ever heard really have been so lowbrow? Yes, it is true. He really did have a thing for butts and poop. Let me share a little piece of music for you, David, here. Uh, This is one of the works that you don't hear presented too often from Amadeus. This is a little party piece that Mozart wrote called Lick Mick im Ars. Do you know the translation of that? I think I can get the rough translation of it. Lick my ass. It's a canon for six voices that was written in 1782. And here's some of the lyrics to it. Lick my ass nicely. Lick it nice and clean. Nice and clean. Lick my ass. That's a greasy desire. Nicely buttered. Like licking of roast meat. My daily activity. Three will lick more than two. Come on, just try it. Lick, lick, lick. Everybody lick their ass for themselves. Ta-da. Ta-da. We do nothing if not high class here. Uh, Apparently not. (laughs) So, it's very true. Lick My Ass was a party piece he wrote, and what's presented in the film of his sense of humor is largely accurate. piece Mozart wrote was Bona Knox, a canon in A major for four voices.
And this is a multilingual piece. He he speaks in Latin, Italian, and the lyrics are in Latin, good night, you're quite an ox. In Italian, good night, my dear latte. In French, good night, fooey fooey. In English, good night, good night. We still have far to go today. Good night, good night. Shit in your bed and make it burst. Good night, sleep tight, and stick your ass to your mouth. So poetic. Now here's what's interesting is scatology seems to be a Mozart family sense of humor. The line shit in your bed and make it burst comes from a rhyme that Mozart's mother would say to him and his sister as she tucked them into bed. So he he learned it from his parents. And we know from his letters, he made scatological references as well. 20 of them in letters to his father, six to his wife, Constance, six letters to his cousin, Maria Anna Thecla Mozart, and other members of the family. And if you're curious to how some of these pieces sound with words, I have Lechmik im Ass on the website, biopicsmostlysuck.com slash Amadeus, sung by an octet of men in rounds, and also by a children's choir. I wonder how that got through the parental consent. It's Europe. They're a little more lax on those things. You know how Europeans are. And it's written by Mozart, so. So it's just high class. Indeed. At the premiere of the play Amadeus in London, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher sought out Peter Schaffer, the playwright, to take him to task for the portrayal of Mozart. She said it was inconceivable that a man who wrote such exquisite and elegant music could be so foul-mouthed. Schaffer replied that Mozart's letters proved he was, and Thatcher's response was, I don't think you heard what I said. He couldn't have been like that. So a a disbelief that, uh, again, somebody who could write uh, such soul-touching music in instances could be so scatological, as you would say. Mm -hmm. And again, as a teenager, that's the part that appealed to me, is that this person isn't on a pedestal. This person is like me. And if that's the case, then I have just as much possibility to create great things as he did. And to me, that was a... That was an earth-shattering presentation of a of an artist, of a public figure. Right, and you also have to look at much of his life. He was still very young. I mean, he, what, he died at 35? Yes. So uh, it would stand to reason in some instances that, I mean, he's maturing. And so why would you expect maybe anything different uh, given his uh, emotional development? But it could just be that's also, I think people were probably talked much more that way in that era, then we would uh, then we would give uh, recognition to. Yeah, I think it's also interesting to compare him to a pop figure during our lifetimes, Michael Jackson. Both had overbearing fathers. Both had little childhood because they were so busy performing and crafting their art. And in adulthood, both were rather juvenile in their approach. Right. I mean, it, again, I hesitate to go back in time and say. Um, the developmental span is the same for Mozart's era as it is for, for ours, but you certainly could make a uh, psychological argument yeah. that people who are, who are so repressed by their parents are going to find ways to express themselves. And sometimes it's going to be uh, coarse. 
let's go ahead and talk about Mozart's money troubles. In the movie, it shows Mozart working in the court of the emperor and the king. His wife has concerns about not being able to make ends meet. In the director's cut of Amadeus, it shows Mozart unable to tolerate giving private lessons in a family's home. And the movie puts forward that he died penniless. Well, what really happened is that it was a standard at the time for composers to work for the court of a king or an emperor, as Salieri had settled into in the film. Mozart didn't do that. He was a freelancer. Well, as we talked before, the standard gig to be a professional paid musician was to work for the court. Um, so that he struggled with money is not surprising. And in the movie, we first see Mozart working for the Archbishop of Salzburg. He received a modest commission and supplemented it with outside freelance work because he had to. He was frequently paid in jewels or trinkets by the court, but not always with money. Having been a child prodigy and a sensation at an early age, and as he was finding success as an adult, his ego grew and he became at odds with the Archbishop, which we see portrayed in the film. By the time he was in his early 20s, he left the court and moved to Vienna. Instead of taking a position in a royal court, he took every commission he could find. He taught music to the children of rich people. He traveled frequently, which spread his reputation and music farther. In one six-week stretch in 1784, he gave 22 concerts. That is just stunning. We think of him as a one of the top conductors or uh, composers of all time. But when you see his origins was uh, playing piano as well as I think violin. Mm -hmm. So it stand to reason that people would be wanting to hear him play given his reputation. Yeah. In the 1780s, Mozart earned 10,000 florins a year. He once earned 1,000 florins for just one concert. And it's difficult to put a value on the florin today because it was a uh, a gold coin, and you'd have to calculate the value of gold at a given time to come to a true value. But to give you a sense of comparison for Mozart's earnings, the upper class at the time earned 500 florins a year. A laborer earned just 25 florins. And with Mozart earning 10,000 florins a year, needless to say, he was rich. Rich, but he seemed to spend a lot of money. At least that's how the movie portrays it, is that he had a high consumption level. And that is largely true, because he and Constance had a large apartment in the hip area of Vienna. They also sent their son to an expensive private school. And they entertained lavishly. They had to keep up appearances because they ran in aristocratic circles. And there is some evidence that Mozart was a gambler. But from the letters that have been written by him, uh, most people think it was a pastime rather than a compulsion. And there are theories based on the letters that Mozart's spending was the result, possibly, of undiagnosed mental illness, such as manic depression or bipolar disorder. Plausible. In 1788, Constance had a series of medical problems, which were treated in very expensive spas. Wolfgang went on a series of short tours to raise funds, but that ended in financial failure, partly because he had to pay his own travel costs. At this time, Austria also entered a couple of wars, so the music and the musical taste changed, and commissions for Mozart dried up. He wrote to friends about being in a dark period of depression. And while the Mozarts were not in danger of going hungry, they also wouldn't change their lifestyle. Wolfgang would beg friends to loan them money, and the loans would be paid back once he got a commission. 
And we see that in the film. He's asking Salieri for money. Yes, you do. For a loan. And Salieri says, I wouldn't get a reputation as being a debtor in Vienna. But apparently Mozart had quite a reputation for that. But he also had a reputation for paying people back. Well, when you look at, say, to switch gears completely, but you take a look at young athletes and the money that falls into their hands and how many of them end up penniless or almost going bankrupt because you have this money flowing in, you develop a, a sense that it's going to go on forever. Yeah. And then once the revenue, once your career ends or that, as you indicate, the tastes change or the mm-hmm. uh, environment in Austria is uh, changing because of the wars, then you're caught with a consumption lifestyle, uh, but not the revenue. During Constance's illness, Wolfgang kept the severity of their financial situation away from her attention. But once she was well, she took charge of the finances. The family moved to a less expensive suburb of Vienna, but kept spending in the lifestyle they had become accustomed to. When the Austrian wars ended, Mozart's career entered an upswing. Several smaller courts had popped up following the wars, and Mozart received more commissions for work, including a commission for Desaberflot, the magic flute, which premiered a few months before his death. And you saying he hated the flute, the first thing I thought of was he wrote the magic flute. He, you can look it up, Rob. He has, he has uh, had some, I don't know if he hated the flute, but he did not, the, he did not like writing for the flute. So uh, the money problems that the Mozarts had leads into the story of the Requiem. And what was in the movie is that Salieri, upon seeing Mozart's opera Don Giovanni, realizes that Mozart is haunted by the memory of his dead father and devises a plan to kill him. He dresses in the costume of Mo- that Mozart's father wore to a costume party and mysteriously requests a requiem be written for payment. He puts Mozart under a timeline, which works him to exhaustion and leads to his death. What really happened? The story of the requiem is a really interesting one, and if things had gone according to plan, we probably never would have known about this piece of music, which is considered one of Mozart's best works. There is some question as to whether or not the story that I'm about to share is true. The information comes from the biography about Mozart that was written by Constance's second husband, George Nicholas von Niesen, and it's Constance's account of Wolfgang's life. However, John Andre, who's the publisher of the biography and a fellow composer, said, quote, the anecdote about the writing of the Requiem is, in my opinion, a fairy tale invented by Mozart's widow. However, a lot of what is in Constance's account is confirmed through contracts and written correspondence. There was a lot of information to piece together regarding the Requiem. There's information that's been lost to time, and there are diluted accounts as the story has been passed down. Different perspectives, depending on the role one had in the scenario, and even duplicity and lies to explain it all away. But the story of the Requiem hangs on one man, Count Franz von Walsegg. Are you familiar with Count Walsegg? No, please school me on him. Count Walsegg lived 30 miles south of Vienna, and his family made their fortune in gypsum mining. He was an amateur composer and a flute player, and he was a lover of music who employed several musicians. Every Tuesday and Thursday, Count Walsig would gather his court and his friends and have his musicians perform new compositions. He would then play a game, and he would ask his court if they could identify the composer of the piece. And 
his friends in the court would guess different composers, and in the end, it would always be, No, it was me! In the end, it was always Count Walseg who wrote the piece that was just performed. And what the Count didn't know is that the court was aware of what he was doing. They knew he would commission pieces from other composers, rewrite it in his own hand, and present it as his own. But they played along because this is what he liked to do, and they thought they were just giving him a simple pleasure. In February of 1791, Count Walseg's wife died. He decided to honor her memory by building a monument that would, and he would commission a requiem that would be written by Mozart. Walsig intended to claim the requiem as his own. In May of 1791, Mozart began work on De Zabberflote. In mid-July, Mozart received a man that was not known to him. This man, dressed all in gray, commissioned a requiem to be written. There are two different accounts about Mozart accepting the commission. The most popular version says that he accepted the commission on the advice of Constance. Further research has shown that Mozart was wary of accepting a commission at this time. He was wrapping up the magic flute and had other commissions piling up. In order to deter the stranger, it is said that he quoted an excessive fee and said the work could not be completed for three months. The man, whom Mozart referred to as the Grey Messenger, agreed and gave him half of the fee up front. Also in mid-July, King Leopold II was about to be crowned the King of Bohemia in Prague, and a new opera was to be commissioned for the celebration. Salieri was approached, but he declined, and the job went to Mozart. Even though Mozart was busy, he could not refuse a commission for an opera, and he got to work on La Clemenza di Tito in September of 1791. Mozart had only seven weeks before the scheduled premiere, and enlisted the help of his assistant, Franz Xavier Sussmeier. On August 25th, Mozart, Sussmeier, and Constance were boarding a coach for Prague to attend the premiere of La Clemenza di Tito when the Grey Messenger appeared. Mozart wrote, as if out of nowhere, and he tugged on Mozart's coat. He inquired about the Requiem. Mozart told him the trip was necessary, and he would finish it when he returned. In mid-September of 1791, Mozart returned to Vienna and had two competing priorities. The theater owner who commissioned the magic flute was growing anxious. The gray messenger appeared again to inform Mozart that the deadline had passed. Mozart said he would need another month because the piece is, quote, more interesting to me. I am expanding it more than at first. The gray messenger was satisfied with the answer and left. Mozart then completed the magic flute and conducted the premiere two days later. Mozart was now free of other commissions and able to work on the Requiem in earnest, which of course means he first completed a clarinet concerto, KV-622, for his friend and fellow Freemason, Anton Stadler, and then he wrote the Little Masonic Cantata, KV-623. By the time he was done with these works, the month that Mozart needed to work on the Requiem had vanished. Now he was ready to work on the Requiem in earnest. But in mid-October, Constance took the score away from him. So there's a little bit of truth. At the end of the movie, you see Constance do that when yes. she discovers Salieri there. So in real life, she did protect him, as we see in the film. Mozart's health had started to decline, and Constance wanted Wolfgang to join her at Prater Park in Vienna for some relaxation. 
It was during this trip that Wolfgang told Constance he had been thinking about death, and he felt as if he were writing the Requiem for himself. He told Constance that he thought he was poisoned, and he did not feel he had long to live. The thought was that the Freemasons were upset about Mozart divulging some of their secrets in the magic flute. The libretto contains secrets and elements from the rituals of this fraternal organization, which Mozart had been a member of for seven years. Later, Wolfgang began to feel better and basically told Constance that whole thing about the poisoning, never mind, I'm good. I don't think I was poisoned. After the Mozarts returned from Prater Park, Wolfgang became ill and took to his bed on November 20th, 1791. He died on December 5th with the Requiem still in the works. Mm. The unfinished Requiem, which Count Walsig was still waiting to receive and call his own, was performed five days after Mozart's death. Five days. Five days. And then Constance entered into a contract with Joseph Eibler, a good friend of Wolfgang's, to complete the Requiem. Now keep in mind, this is being performed while Walsig is still waiting for what he thinks is the only copy. Which, pretty, pretty duplicitous. Which he's going to present as his own. But Constance still had debts to pay from Wolfgang's spending habits, and she stood to make a good deal of money that she needed from Count Walsig, who was still anxious for the Requiem. In the end, Eibler was not able to bring himself to work on his friend's Requiem. Constance then tapped Franz Xavier Sussmeyer to complete the task. Sussmeyer finished the Requiem in February of 1792, and he made great pains to forge Mozart's handwriting on the compositions, which wasn't difficult because his handwriting was very similar to Mozart's already. He made three copies, two for Constance and one for himself. Remember, the contract with Count Walsig stipulated that he would receive the only copy of the Requiem. After those three copies were made, Constance sold the Requiem and seven other works to Mo of Mozart's to King Frederick Wilhelm II of Prussia for a fee that was four times the annual salary that Mozart made as court Kapellmeister. There would be an unknown number of sales of the Requiem to princes that would take place over the years. We think Count Walsig received his copy of the Requiem in the spring of 1792. Of course, he received what he thought was the autograph manuscript, autograph a term for the original, and rewrote it in his own hand to present to his court in December of 1792. In January of 1793, Baron von Switzen organized a benefit performance of the Requiem, with the proceeds going to Constance. This was the first public performance of the completed Requiem, and Salieri attended the rehearsals. Count Walsig performed the Requiem again in February of 1794 on the anniversary of his wife's death. Word had already spread that Mozart had written a Requiem on his deathbed, and this became a problem for Count Walsig, when he was now being asked how he managed to write the same piece of music that Mozart had written. Walsig claimed that he was a student of Mozart's. He wasn't, and that he sent pieces of the Requiem to his master for his approval. He didn't, and that when Mozart died, the Requiem was mistaken to be authored by Mozart. It wasn't. Given these questions, Walsig stopped performing the Requiem. Understandably so. The jig was up. Even though the movie Amadeus shows Mozart overworked and Salieri pushing him to complete the Requiem to his death, 
There is some truth that comes from the real events and more drama and intrigue than the movie shows. It sounds quite a lot of intrigue behind <laughs> the writing of the Requiem. And all of it necessary because Constance is still trying to make good on debt. So yep. she did what she could with two young children. Yeah. But it's interesting how you have pieces that are unfinished by great composers and they're, people take a stab at finishing them. Yeah. So you have the Mahler 10th which he had written parts of, but had not, in sketches of some of the movements, but had not finished it before his death. And there's been several who've written their own version of the Mahler 10. So there is some examples of this in classical history. They, they are much more transparent. Like the, Derek, <laughs> the Derek Cook version of, of Mahler 10 was very transparent. This is really, I think you're right in your earlier statements, this could be almost a movie in and of itself. Let's go ahead and talk about Mozart's death. What was in the movie was that Antonio Salieri, in a rage against God, worked Mozart until he died of exhaustion. Salieri was there in the final hours as he transcribed notes for the Requiem. What really happened is that Mozart died at the age of 35, which was relatively young in 1791, when the average life expectancy was 45 years of age. So the fact Salieri made it to 74, that's even more remarkable. Correct. Mozart's symptoms included a high fever, a rash of some kind, and edema, a swelling of the limbs, face, and gut due to retained body fluid. The edema was not terrible because we know he was not short of breath because he was singing parts of the aria from his bed to an assistant who would write it down. The night before he died, he had friends over to sing the parts of the Requiem, which suggests he had breath and he had mental acuity. We don't know what exactly killed Mozart, and one of the reasons is because when the medical professionals at the time didn't know, they would just write it down as acute miliary fever. It's a term no longer used in the medical community, and it basically translates to we don't have a clue. A Berlin newspaper reported a week after his death that he died from poisoning. And this is when the rumors started to come up about Salieri, because Salieri, in his old age, and with dementia, confessed to killing Mozart on his deathbed. There have been 136 different medical diagnoses based on the symptoms of Mozart, which were documented. Tuberculosis and mercury poisoning are possible. Trichinosis, a disease from eating uncooked pork, has been a diagnosis because Mozart wrote in his diary that he ate pork, and the timeline for a parasite for that parasite to gestate fits in the timeline of his dated entry mm -hmm. of the onset of symptoms. Out of all of the potential causes of Mozart's death, streptococcal infection seems to be the most likely. A group of epidemiologists studied the death reports for the few weeks surrounding Mozart's death in 1791, and they found that there was an increase of young people dying around this time period. There was an epidemic taking place at this time that matched the symptoms that Mozart had. The streptococcal infection caused kidney failure, which caused edema, and resulted in rheumatic fever. After his death, Mozart was buried in an unmarked mass grave. And outside of the movie, a lot is usually made of this, because historians put together Mozart's money troubles, and it's a mass grave, and it frequently gets referred to as a pauper's grave. Yes, it does. But Austrian customs at the time precluded anyone other than aristocracy from having a private burial. So what we see in the movie was what 
happen to everyone in Vienna, regardless of the amount of money that you made. The Mozart Eum, a Mozart museum in Vienna, has had a skull in their possession which is supposed to be the skull of Mozart that was collected by a grave digger when the mass grave was dug up to be prepared to be reused. This was a common thing with the mass graves at the time. They would dig up the bones and reinter them and put some fresh bodies in there. This grave digger said he had noted the location of Mozart's skull when buried and 10 years later obtained the skull from his recollection of the location. In 2004, researchers got permission to dig up Mozart's relatives. They pulled DNA from his niece and from his aunt to compare to the skull. None of the mitochondrial DNA matched between the three individuals. This means that the skull may not be Mozart's, and it also brings into question whether the niece and the aunt are really relatives of Mozart at all. That's an interesting point. Wow. Yeah. Now, really quickly, uh, the relationship between Salieri and Mozart is something we should discuss. Yes. Because it gets presented in the movie as being rather contentious, and Amadeus Mozart unknowingly mocking Salieri at every turn. And also then Scalieri doing everything he can to sabotage Mozart's career. Yes, and it doesn't seem that this was necessarily the case. For instance, we do have record that Salieri attended the premiere of The Magic Flute, so they were cordially professional with each other. We do show that Mozart's son was a student of Salieri's, so they obviously had a trust and liking for each other in that regard. They were very professional with each other. And I was able to find here a piece of music that is the only known composition written by Salieri and Mozart together. Well, that's a find. Mm -hmm. Let's go ahead and take a look at it. This is Per la Recuperetta Salute di Ophelia, for the recovered health of Ophelia. It is a solo cantata for soprano and forte piano, composed in 1785 by Antonio Salieri and Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, and a third unknown composer, Cornetti, to a libretto written by the Vienna court poet Lorenzo da Ponte. It is speculated that Cornetti may refer to Alessandro Cornetti, a vocal teacher and composer active in Vienna at the time, or that is a pseudonym for Salieri. Could be. Uh, music historians say it's not a great piece of music. No, but it's credible. So, for the most part, they were professional. There didn't seem to be animosity that was between them. They supported each other. They seemed to have trusted each other. Well, and you take a look at the fact that Scalieri is now known as a teacher mm -hmm. with very uh, distinguished uh, students. And that doesn't really fit the sort of person who Scalieri is portrayed as in, the, in the, this sort of egocentric, just driven by revenge. He, he, I think Scalieri was a gracious 
person from what I've been able to read. And as we've talked about before, maybe not in the same league as Mozart's, but certainly a very uh, credible composer who deserves to be heard today. So I don't see anything there that would that would cast them as the as Scalieri is trying to do in Mozart. I mean, clearly there can be rivalries, and, and within rivals there can be tension. But I don't get any 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 sense of that 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 part was true. But it really, nevertheless, that makes the movie great. That tension. In, in essence, there is a truth to it because rumors about Salieri killing Mozart started while Salieri was still alive. People have put together Mozart saying he was poisoned and put that together with Salieri's confession in old age with dementia of saying he killed Mozart and said, aha, so Salieri killed Mozart. That was reinforced five years after Salieri's death in 1832 when Alexander Pushkin wrote a play that was called Mozart and Salieri. And the play is about Salieri killing Mozart, which is what Peter Schaffer adapted to write Amadeus. Oh, I didn't know that. Pushkin. Pushkin. Wow. Yep. So this is something that has been out there. It's been rumor. People believed it at the time. And it became the play in the movie, which you and I appreciate so much, which is the movie Amadeus. Right. And in some ways, it's hard to believe that somebody as gifted as Mozart could just die of natural causes. That had to be something to to take him down. That's a good point. And I had a, I had a, a conversation with an old family friend back in DC about Felix Mendelssohn. And I told him that, well, Mendelssohn, like Mozart died at a, at a very young age in, you know, Mendelssohn, a, a, a great uh, composer and, and a great conductor uh, formed, I think the, uh, the oldest uh, uh, orchestra in Europe, the, the Leipzig Gewinehaus Orchestra. And my my father's friend said, well, no, he couldn't have died of natural causes. The queen loved him. <laughs> so there's just sort of this disbelief that, that you know, uh, cholera or anything like that could take down somebody. Yeah, it's interesting you make that point. I hadn't thought of that at such a young age and being such a gifted composer that people would have a disbelief that something that's a natural cause could take him when the average age life expectancy was 45. Well, and, and also you'd have to filter the average age, which is the, the social class that he is in, mm-hmm. would likely have a much longer life expectancy than that. I mean, you take a look at Bach, Haydn, uh, a lot of the, the uh, composers that were around before Mozart lived much longer than he did. Yeah. So I, I would imagine that with his, as you note, his wealth, or at least his status, that he's he's not living in hovels. And uh, so he's uh, less likely probably to have been exposed to some of the, the things that would naturally kill people, such as really bad diet or, or these sorts of things. That's very true. Interesting point there. So with all this information presented, it's time to grade the movie Amadeus A through F for truth and accuracy, even though truth and accuracy were never the intention of Peter Schaffer. David, what would you give Amadeus on a grade scale of A through F for accuracy and truth? An A minus. A minus. Really? Why do you say A minus? Well, I, I think it's seen from the view of of him when he's dying of dementia. So in, in that sense, with dementia, everything gets reframed. And so I think your earlier point is holds true that this is sort of his view of their relationship filtered through a mind that is no longer 
uh, what it was when he was actually with Mozart. So you have not only the time eroding the memory, but then you have dementia eroding it. So I think it really creates this sort of interesting view. Uh, but, but again, what makes it, I think, compelling is the view is somebody who's seen as the genius versus somebody who's seen as journey, journeyman, more or less. Uh, and that, that contrast, I think, really makes, and that tension makes the movie great. You know, I'll go along with that, uh, with the way you present it there. I, I'll go with a B on that. Okay. For truth and accuracy. Noting, of course, Peter Schaffer never intended for that to be the case with this movie. But there's a lot of element of truth in what's presented in the life that Mozart lived and his money troubles and with little tweaks taken here and there. And even with the Requiem, there's a basic truth to how it's presented in the movie. It's just the uh, the motive is completely changed. Fantastic. Well, David, thank you for joining me for your first time here well, and talking about one of my favorite films. Yeah, sure you betcha, as my family would say in Wisconsin. All right. Thanks. Now is the time when we fact-check ourselves. I do a lot of preparation to put these episodes together, but sometimes the conversation goes to a place we didn't expect and we're caught unaware of the facts. In these instances, we may say something we think is correct, only for it not to be. For instance, David thought Edith Head had designed the costumes for Amadeus. Edith Head, of course, was the legendary costume designer who won eight Academy Awards for costume design, making her the most awarded woman in Academy Awards history. Unfortunately, Edith died in 1981. The last movie she worked on was a Steve Martin movie called Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. The costume designer for Amadeus was Theodore Pistek, and he won the Academy Award for his work. This is all the more amazing considering that the film was shot in Prague, Czechoslovakia during the Cold War, and Prague did not have an infrastructure for a feature film crew. Everything that became the costumes had to be sourced locally. In fact, some of Salieri's own clothes were found and were worn by F. Murray Abraham during the production. Speaking of F. Murray Abraham... David was under the impression that he was not American due to Abraham's work in period dramas. F. Murray Abraham was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and was raised in El Paso, Texas. He is first-generation Syrian-American. His father immigrated to the United States during the famine in Syria. And lastly, I want to make a mention about the piece of music we discussed that is shown in the film as being a march for Mozart written by Salieri. This is, in fact, not a piece of music that was written by Salieri. It's a clever bit of fiction inserted by the filmmakers because it is a reductive variation of the aria Non Piu Andrai, which appears in La Nazi de Figaro, or The Marriage of Figaro. And if you would like to see that aria... You're going to recognize the march immediately. Just go to our website, biopicsmostlysuck.com slash Amadeus. Well, that wraps it up for another episode of Biopics Mostly Suck. We release these episodes once a month, so make sure you subscribe so you get those episodes in your queue. Just a quick word, guys. If Spotify is your thing and you find us there, fantastic. 
just know I did put in a request with Spotify to take my podcast off of their platform over this whole COVID misinformation thing. I just can't be somewhere that's paying someone $200 million and is spreading lies about a life and death situation. And yeah, even though most of us are doing well and most of us are vaccinated, it is a life and death situation, especially for those who are immunocompromised and really don't have an option. So that's why we've all been wearing masks and had to get vaccinated to be good for other people, which really isn't that the point of being a human being in this world is to just take care of each other. And when someone's not doing their part, I really can't stand by that. So if I'm still on Spotify, great. Last time I checked, they hadn't taken it down yet, even though they sent me an email that said they did. But uh, yeah, if that's your thing, you might want to find us somewhere else. We're also on YouTube on the website, biopicsmostlysuck.com. And you can also uh, find us on just about every other platform on the planet. So, so go look for us there if you don't see us on Spotify. You can also find all kinds of fun things at our website at biopicsmostlysuck.com. While you're there, send us a message. Let us know how we're doing. We can see the downloads are taking place all over the world. Thank you to all of you who are listening. It's really exciting to see the next place that's listening to this little thing that we do. But we kind of like to know who you are and what your interests are. So drop us a line and let us know what movie we might talk about for a future episode. And if you do, we'll tell the true story about that movie based on a true story. Take care, everyone.